This episode of the Vincast is brought to you in part by Different Drop, online wine retailers specialising in Australian wines that's uh, pretty hard to find these days, uh, usually because they're made by uh, small, up-and-coming and innovative winemakers around the country. Uh, typically, you'd only find in you know the, the top restaurants and bars rather than in your local wine store. So um, the guys at Different Drop have done an amazing job sourcing some of these uh, fantastic but hard-to-find wines and put them all onto their website at differentdrop.com. And that makes it easier for you to find. And, you know, if you sort of let them know the kind of wines that you like, particularly if they're wines uh, made by former guests of this podcast, then uh, you can let them know and they can put something together for you or you can pick your own kind of mixed pack and uh, then they'll ship it anywhere in Australia. And it usually only takes a few days. So um, as a supporter of the podcast, Different Drop have set up a very special section on their website. Um, it's at differentdrop.com forward slash intrepid wino. Uh, and you'll find all the wines that they have available from previous guests of this podcast. Uh, and if you put in the code intrepid wino at purchase, the guys at Different Drop will give you a 10% discount. And if that, um, if it doesn't happen, then please let me know as soon as possible. Uh, cause, um, I want to make sure that the, the guys at Different Drop look after you. So, uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode. Uh, and I hope you enjoy it. Episode 78 of the Vincast, I chat with Daniel Fischel, uh, viticultural consultant extraordinaire and one half of the Linnea Wines Story. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Winer, and as always, I uh, am glad to have you on board for another fabulous wine chat as uh, Australia's uh, premier wine podcast. It is an honor to have uh, so many uh, fantastic and uh, engaged listeners, as well as so many fascinating uh, guests to share their story and I've got another absolute doozy for this week. Uh, I was uh, recommended by the the wonderful John Fister, uh, the guy behind Exceller Agencies here in Melbourne, um, to get in contact with Daniel Fischel, uh, who, who is sort of behind the uh, Linnea Wines with his wife. Uh, because apparently he was uh, not only an amazing winemaker and, and viticultural expert, but also uh, had a, a really fantastic story to share. So I got in contact with Daniel, and we've finally been able to um, to find some time to sit down, and uh, and it was great. I, I learned a lot about his background and uh, and his uh, opportunities, uh, particularly around the world. So um, I hope you do enjoy this episode of the Vincast. Please stick around till the end of the episode so you can find out how to uh, to to share your uh, impressions of the episode with both Daniel and myself. But until then, I will see you on the other side. Daniel, 
Thank you very much for making some time to be on the Vincast. Obviously, with you, all of your uh, work and travels and stuff like that, I appreciate you being able to uh, be available and welcome on the Vincast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So, um, as you may be aware, I usually start every episode by asking my guests if they can remember the first interaction with the wine that they had that kind of set them on the path. Yes, uh, I've got several collective memories that seem to have uh, added up to a, a unique experience, a unique entry into the industry. Yeah. Um, as a kid, my parents always had a bottle of Blue Nun open on the uh, on the dining table, and we would always sneak in and, and drink some of that. Now, I'm inter- I would like to know where you, where you grew up. So I grew up in Sydney. Okay, so yeah, up on the north I, shore of Sydney. I was never sure if Blue Nun was actually available in Australia. It was. Yeah, I remember it quite succinctly. I think the, it was all about the packaging and never about the contents. Sure. Um, but after my brother and I got into it, there wasn't much content left anyway. So it was um, pretty sweet. Yeah, sweet and uh, pretty easy to drink, I think. Um, that was their alternative to boxed wine. Yeah. And then um, uh, I believe on my 13th birthday, we were, um, uh, we were in Rome with the family, a, a long-awaited holiday, I guess, and it was, happened to be my birthday and my parents were looking the other way and I happened to have a really nasty hangover. Um, at the age of 13, I okay. don't know. I'm not sure what was consumed the night before because it's all a bit blurry, but the... Uh, the experience in the next morning wasn't particularly pleasant. I know that, and um, the the professional interest came. Uh, I was living in California in um, 1996. I moved to California to do a PhD in plant molecular genetics, and um, by chance I happened to end up doing a, a, a research project on grapevines. The um, building was part of the Department of Viticulture and Enology, even though my actual department was was something different. I was working with some of the post-harvest people looking at you know storage of fruits and vegetables. And um, it was pretty clear after about, I don't know, two weeks that the Viticulture and Enology students seemed to have a lot more fun than those that were studying uh, storage of strawberries. So no doubt, no doubt. one thing led to another. And, um, you know, six years later, a research project on ripening in grapevines later and uh, uh, the goal was to get out of the lab, get some fresh air, and uh, I found myself living in Napa Valley. Was this by any chance at UC Davis? That was, yeah. Yeah, okay. How did you end up um, getting into the the field of study that you were doing at the time? Yeah, I, I did an undergrad in uh, molecular genetics. Um, I was working on um, bacteria, humans, strange combination, but that's what happened at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, tried a, a couple of master's degree, one in um, looking at osteoporosis, basically genetic linkage to osteoporosis. Uh, it was pretty boring and my professor was a bit of a jerk. Uh, so I figured I'd um, save up some cash. I worked in a warehouse. I worked, did delivered pizzas, worked at the Ari, um, collecting ashtrays for a couple of years, saved up enough cash to get to California and, and uh, yeah, dove into plant molecular g- genetics. Any particular reason why you headed there? Uh, probably an opportunity to get away, travel a little bit, um, see the world, different perspectives, and, um, yeah, California was pretty appealing. Mm. So you were hanging around with uh, a lot of the, the, the viticulture and oenology students. Exactly. Um, and, and and that kind of introduced you to the conviviality of wine, like the fact that they would just sort of open bottles and just have fun and just talk about wines in a very casual way. Exactly. They had lectures during the day and they had open bottles at night. Were your parents wine drinkers no. at all? No, I still can't get them to drink anything. <laughs> so really, this was the sort of the real introduction to, to wine and and, uh, and and you sort of started to think about it professionally uh, at what point? Um, probably about four years into the six-year degree, I was um, getting a little bit sick of lab. I was a, a gene jockey, effectively. I was just creating genomic databases of... Uh, um, of genes that are expressed during ripening, and um, it, it got a bit tedious. The other the other issue that happened was technology is uh, you know it can it can run up behind us and, and overtake us 
uh, at the best of times while I was doing my work and I was, you know, it would take me about two weeks to isolate one gene, sequence it and, and work out what it did. Along came the, uh, the um, gene chip and all of a sudden a $2 million lab was built and they were churning out uh, thousands of genes a week, which made me a little bit uh, obsolete. So how how does how would that, how does that work? <laughs> That's just what they did. They just technology. Uh, it's a it's a uh, it's an issue of scale. I mean, uh, I was doing an individual individual work, individual test tubes. Right. They could build machines that could run um, thousands of test tubes at once with um, much smaller quantities of uh, volumes than I was using and. And that's technology. Same with computing, same with pretty much everything. Far out. Okay. Yeah. So now the gene chips are readily available. I think they've got about uh, 60,000 genes on them, and you can pretty much probe anything at any time. Sure. You know, it took me two years to uh, just get the Verizon samples. So did you have a, a particular um, area that you were interested in as far as wine, a kind of focus on the, into the, the, the industry, as it were? Yeah, no, I was... Um, when I realized that lab was the lab life was a bit brutal, I mean, my desk had, uh, my bench had uh, sort of a doorway to look through, a little window in that doorway, down a corridor, there was a tiny little porthole window on the door at the end, and I could see a green leaf on a tree. Uh, that was my only greenery, and it just seemed like it was, uh, it was calling me to come outside. Mm. So after, after a number of years in lab, I spent my last couple of years sort of sitting in on classes uh, on ecology, on um, a lot of sort of the natural world, learning about natural processes, ecosystem services, and so on. And um, at the end of all of that, I, I felt like I was really well positioned to go out and be a, a consultant on uh, vineyards, um, bringing a new, unique perspective. I sort of I look at the biochemistry of wine yeah. and work backwards from there to farming, sort of apply what I understood, what we understood about gene changes, mm -hmm. biochemistry in grapevines, and apply that to farming and how we can manipulate the farming to manipulate wine chemistry. It's almost like a wine detective. <laughs> I guess. Like you look at the evidence that you have and you're, okay, let's reverse engineer this and let's work backwards and sort of see where it might have come from. Exactly, except in this case, we're actually the ones doing the killing. Yeah, okay. Maybe you should be in uh, True Detective Season 3. I hope so. <laughs> I've got a good face for radio, I know that much. So, um, so, so, how did you start uh, working out in terms of like where, where, like you mentioned, the Napa Valley? Yeah. So, you did you begin to consult to 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 vineyards and to wineries? Yeah. So, very briefly, I spent uh, I did a harvest at a winery in Napa Valley. Learned uh, how to lug hoses and get dirty. Mm -hmm. um, the how, actual practicality of winemaking. Exactly. Yeah. What to do if the truck breaks down? You don't learn that in university. No. And um, how not to drive a school forklift? Of, into, school of hard knocks. Right. Except that I didn't university. do any hard knocking of forklifts into tanks. That was yeah. useful. Okay. I did see that, and I have seen that. <laughs> um, and it's not not pretty. No. But um, so I did that. I did a, I did a vintage, and then um, managed to get a job with a uh, Napa's premier uh, vineyard advising company, a crop care consultants. Okay. And they um, they basically gave me a truck, uh, a little small manual of pests and diseases, and a phone, and said, "Get out there. Here's your maps, and here are um, you know here's the road. <laughs> Go visit vineyards, and if you have any problems, give us a call." And basically, the job was just to scout, look for disease, look for problems, look for concerns, look for things that are going well talk with the growers and, and get an understanding. One of the things that's great was you learn really quickly when you're given no supervision, sure. or minimal supervision, and you get to talk to the people who have been doing it for 20 years. Yeah, of course. Their hands are dirty. They've done it forever. They know every vine inside and out. They may not know the science. They may not be educated. But they know their the piece of land. land. But they're, they're educated. They're far more educated than you are yeah. when it comes to that piece of land and those vines. Yeah, and yeah. so you can learn a lot just from talking to people. So were you going around to vineyards of your clients or just all vineyards? No, all around Napa. So I was given about 3,000 uh, acres. What's that, about uh, 
1200 hectares yeah and uh that was about 60 vineyards and i had to loop that in a week wow <laughs> it was quite it was impressive sure a lot and, of time in the car and did you enjoy sort of living in in that, was fantastic. In that area oh napa's great napa's a great place to visit um we lived there about 10 years um i moved in 2010 i moved back to australia i still continue to work in napa valley yeah through uh through last year in fact yeah and um yeah it's a beautiful place i mean perfect vineyards perfect food mm-hmm. great wines mm-hmm. It's not a not a bad place in the world, and the the Latino farmers are just an immaculate immaculate people. They're they're beautiful people. They're a really hardworking culture. Um, they're very. I really hate that kind of that that stereotype of like you know most commonly Mexicans as being sort of lazy. No, they're the hardest working that. vineyard. They're actually the hardest working people in the world. Yeah, no question. The vineyards industrial. are immaculate. They they love what they do. They take care of it, even though they're woefully underpaid. Mm. They and you know some of them are forced to live in uh, multiple families in the same house. They still come up every. They get up every day at four o'clock, get out to the vineyard, and get the work done. And and just just a beautiful people, beautiful culture. Mm. So you, this really gave you an opportunity to really uh, you get learn as much as possible about the actual vineyard and and kind of different parts of, mm-hmm. for example, the Napa Valley and the nuances of uh, of elevation aspect that sort of stuff. Did you really try and make the most of of that experience? Yes, I did. And in fact, I worked for CropCare for two years, and uh, one of the vineyard management companies in Napa, um, David Abreu Vineyard Management, uh, he's uh, he's called Vineyard Manager to the Stars. And um, basically, he, he was a guy who's one of the pioneers in Napa, involved in farming all the really high-end vineyards. Uh, right. Screaming Eagle, sure. Harlan Estate, Colgan, etc. All the Parker darlings. I know everyone hates Parker here, but you know all the 100-pointers. Um, David farmed all of those. He replanted all of them. He planted them. He did all the work for them. Mm. Um, he came calling and said, um, I was about to be a, um, take a, an advisory role at crop care. And David said, why don't you come do the same thing for me? So I became an agricultural scientist uh, with David Abra Vineyard Man. Management. And it was a that was great, and it gave me access to already immaculate vineyards. My job there was to focus on ways to keep him ahead of everyone else. Sure. So the goal was to bring the science in that I'd been studying in the lab, bring that into the vineyard, and really, really focus. I was given leeway to do any kind of experimentation I wanted. Often we did that without the owners knowing about it. Mm. Um, and just to really work hard on on everything, and and my responsibilities kept climbing. I was involved with all the um, irrigation, fertilization, pesticides, um, uh, looking at environmental remediation, trying to sort of get together this concept of the vineyard as an ecosystem. Sure. Try to build something that's a, a more more sustainable. Um, we looked at all the different technologies we could bring out to the to viticulture, put technology in the vineyard, uh, bring new farming techniques in. Uh, we started, we well, the first ones to start cover, uh, so shade clothing out in the vineyard. Now it's standard practice in Napa. Uh, we did some sap flow sensor work that really fundamentally changed the way irrigation should be done in all grapevines all around the world. Um, and we'll talk about that later if you like. And um, it just gave me a good opportunity to really focus on, on science. Remote sensing was another part of it. So mm-hmm. um, coming out of that, um, I worked there for uh, up until last year. Um, in 2008, we started consulting on my own, started adding other people's properties, and really focusing on high-end vineyards mm. and how to how to sort of improve the quality of high-end vineyards. Just on the topic of um, ecosystems, yeah, uh, I'm interested to sort of hear what your opinion is. Myself, having visited um, not only the Napa Valley but a couple of uh, the other high-profile regions in California, mm. um, I'm interested to hear what you think as far as um, monocultures 
Uh, well, uh, like as far as because I because I found that the Napa Valley more than most of the regions I visited in the world to be very very heavily planted to vineyards. Yes, and I'm just sort of interested to sort of hear how um, biodiversity is introduced into vineyards in that kind of environment. Yeah, that's a good question. Napa is heavily planted. You actually can in several spots, and I can show you if you want, stand with your foot on four different vineyards at the same time, all of which are uh, $200 to $1,000 a bottle. Mm. Um, but it is the land, the sort of the available high-end land there is pretty much fully taken, and the county doesn't allow any future expansion that's good. Uh, into new areas. Yeah, so it is a monoculture. Grapevines are a monoculture, and in fact, they're uh, a worse monoculture than most agriculture. Because some of our clones are, you know, 800,000, 1500 years old, our varieties. We haven't changed them genetically in that time. Mm. And you look at a disease like powdery mildew, that's going through multiple generations in a single year. Yeah. So grapevines are really up against it. They don't have the opportunity to engage in this genetic warfare, this back and forth um, where... You know, one system, one system changes its genetics to overcome the other one, then the other one changes its genetics to fight back, and you get this kind of predator-prey relationship. Um, in the natural world, that doesn't happen with grapevines. So you've now got this monoculture, and what we try to do is we try to change the environment all around that so that we mitigate and we offset the, uh, the effect the grapevine really does have uh, by being such a um, genetic uh, grandparent. Um, ways we go about that, the ways I was going about that, I was um, whenever we do a, uh, did a new vineyard development or a redevelopment where we'd rip out the old vineyard and replant it, um, I would start by looking at the um, the land around it. What's mm-hmm. what's the environment? What's outside our fences? Uh, one of the important things is not just how does a vineyard affect the environment outside of its fence, but what outside of the fence is going to affect the vineyard inside? Mm. What's coming? In basically, you're looking at the flow of nutrients, the flow of insects, the flow of animals in both directions. Um, and from there, we started designing buffer strips, we started designing riparian corridors, we designed hedgerows, uh, we would put in cover crops, um, multi species cover crops. I think at one point, I actually put a, an edible cover crop in uh, one vineyard in Napa that had 42 species, of which 38 were edible. Mm-hmm. and um, would flower or seed at different times of the year or fruit at different times of the year. So the owner was very excited to go out and pretty much eat anything he, he could at any time out of the vineyard. Yeah, sure. What that does is it increases the biodiversity. Uh, that's your best weapon against um, diseases, insect diseases, for example. You can build up a lot of habitat for predators. Uh, there's a number of good wasp species that will take down the uh, insects that cause damage or spread disease in grapevines, for example. Likewise, with the soil, you're always worried about nematodes. There are plants that will actually um, cause a, a change in the species of nematodes in the soil. Mm-hmm. So um, whilst you were living in, and working there, I'm, I'm sure you got the opportunity to do a bit of travel around different regions in California, for example. Did you get to see much of the other regions of, uh, of the U.S.? No, I did most of my work in California, um, Sonoma County, Napa County primarily, a little bit uh, Lake and so on. In the last couple of years, I've been working in San Luis Obispo County down in Southern California, Mm -hmm. Central California. That's been quite a change because it's limestone soil and everything in Napa is volcanic. Mm -hmm. And um, they're not the same. I know (laughs) if you read wine labels, I think 98% of the world's vineyards are volcanic, but it's not true. Most of them are actually limestone or, or just sort of alluvial river wash. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of volcanic, you know, true volcanic soil out there. But um, I, I, I did a project at one point. I had to go and sort of rework the nursery system in California. I spent four years and about $400,000 worth of owner's money uh, down in California sampling all the uh, rootstocks. 
mother vines and so on from the different nurseries, mm -hmm. we were getting a lot of diseased material coming through. You know, in Napa, you can spend uh, these for prime land. You could spend three hundred or four hundred thousand dollars an acre, so about a million dollars a hectare. Wow! For vineyard land. Then we would walk in, we'd look at it, do an assessment, say, sorry, going to have to replant, it's going to cost you another $100,000 an acre. We'd put all this money and effort into it, and then, you know, we'd, get, we'd end up getting dirty plant material, diseased plant material, bad quality stuff coming from the nursery. So that was my next task. Spent four days doing that and, and came up with a plant standard. Got a couple of nurseries to change their practices significantly. Um, uh, an individual from Italy approached me and said, hey, I've seen what you've done. Are you able to come over to Italy? We've got a, um, a fledgling project. There's a collective of nurseries. Italians like to have cooperatives and, and communes. And um, there's a collective of nurseries with a research plot. Come out, have a look. We want to um, try to hone down our materials. We want to improve the practices, improve our cleanliness uh, protocols and see if we can get, you know, five or ten different good clones of Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, Cabernet, Merlot, Cab Franc for both the Italian and the American market. Right. So I got flown over to Italy for a week, which was great. Yeah. Uh, spent a few days in Veneto. I think one day I was, um, we were sitting at Lake Garda just uh, eating, uh, at, you know, midnight as Italians do, drinking some good wine and then somebody pulled out a bottle of really nice Nebbiolo, uh, a Barolo in fact, and I hadn't seen Barolo that good before. Um, I asked where it was from. One of the guys said, you know, it's one of, we supply this, this winery. I said, this is amazing. We should go look. They're like, all right, let's do it. So at midnight, we jump in the car. We drive across the top of Italy, <laughs> end up at dawn in, uh, in Piemonte, get up to the winery and uh, start chatting. One thing leads to the next, and they've uh, brought me on as a consultant, and I've negotiated to start making some wine there. Wow. So that's how our Linnea brand started making Barolo. Did Linnea exist before that? Yeah, we were making a Napa cab. Started in 2008. We've been doing a Napa from, uh, from Hell Mountain. So um, how, how did the Linnea story actually start? Like, where you, Did you kind of have an idea or did someone suggest it to you? Or did you and, and, and where did you get sort of the idea? I'm not sure if you are the, the winemaker necessarily or if, 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 it's, if it's collaborative. Um, but w yeah, where did the Linnea story sort of originate? And this is whilst you were still, you know, working as a consultant, of course. Right. So exactly. So I was still working as a consultant. Um, I'd met my wife in, uh, in Davis and, uh, we'd moved together, uh, unmarried. She's now my wife. We, we lived together for a number of years in Napa and, um, she's a winemaker. So she was a consultant winemaker as sure. well. We spent all our time making other people's wine, growing other people's grapes. And we thought, you know, why don't we, uh, why don't we dive into this as well? It's a good place to sink all your money, yeah. to lose all your cash. So we did it. It's a fun way to spend a fortune, isn't it? Oh, it's great. It's, a, it's really brilliant because you, uh, you sink your money in and about seven years later, about seven years later, you get the opportunity to make that first dollar back. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're spent on the next, you know, the in-between in six vintages. And you can't stop in, just in case you are successful because you need, they need to have more wine for the future. Exactly. So great place to sink your money. Anyway, so we started uh, started Linnea. Just started it small with a, a single Napa cab from uh, from Hal Mountain, and um, we yeah. So it's just the two of us. Um, like I said, she's a consultant winemaker. She'd been working in Napa for a number of years, and um, then so did she consult to two different clients, or yeah, was she so working she had, for she actually, a winery? We actually had some overlap. We actually had some overlap in Napa. She was working for a few of the clients that I did. I ended up working for her, yeah. which was an interesting experience. Yeah, she was out there telling me what she did and didn't didn't want in the vineyard against some of my uh, judgments. Sure. But um, it it worked out obviously well enough for us to get married and start you know two businesses together. Um, still happily married with three kids under seven, mm. 
And um, yeah, so that's where it started. We, it was basically just a small project. We only wanted to make anywhere from 150 to 350 cases of any given wine. Yeah. Just basically um, through the consulting, through Ear Trumpet Consulting, we, um, I had access to a lot of different vineyards around the world. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to start traveling after Italy. I started working in China, um, in uh, Israel, in Mexico, um, and, uh, you know, very, a number of other countries. I've been invited to Portugal and a few other places, um, Russia, which I've declined. And um, we basically... I'm sure, I'm sure there are slightly less volatile places in the world you could work. <laughs> there are. Uh, Ukraine was an offer as well. I also declined that one. <laughs> anyway, so we, um, we basically I get access to a lot of different vineyards. And so what I do is if I see a parcel I really like, if it's a wine we really enjoy, I'll talk to the owner and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm consulting on the property. Is there an opportunity to make a little bit of wine from it? We'll take a small parcel of their wine and then we'll actually go and make it in their winery. Okay. So we don't, uh, you know, we're the generation that's overeducated and undercapitalized. And so we don't own the winery, we don't own the land, but we... We make the arrangement. I get to consult on the on the grapes, so it's done under my jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we fly over to wherever it is, and we spend the vintage there. We actually make the wine, paint a little line on the ground, saying to the owner, don't cross this line. This is our stuff. This is our corner. We'll make our wine and then bottle it up and, and ship it to Melbourne. Mm. Wine Companion is one of the most comprehensive wine resources in Australia uh, with Amazing information about all the wine producers, the wines they produce, tasting notes, vintage reports, uh, not to mention interesting articles about the people and uh, the places that you, the behind the wines that you possibly drink uh, on a regular basis. Um, but did you know that Wine Companion has an amazing uh, array of different packages that you can actually uh, take advantage of? So you may only want access to the amazing website resource, which has got um, you know uh, an amazing repository of tasting notes and scores for wines. Uh, you may actually be interested in uh, reading the um, regular uh, magazine, uh, or perhaps you would actually like to get both those and the uh, 2016 edition of the Wine Companion book. Well, if you go to winecompanion.com.au and you go to uh, becoming a, a different membership package, if you put in the special code Intrepid30 at purchase, then you're actually going to get a special bonus, a listener of the Vincast, a 30% discount, which is a fantastic opportunity uh, to take advantage of this uh, amazing, amazing uh, resource and uh, access to uh, articles, for example, written by previous guests of this very podcast. So do head to the One Companion website, show your support for the Vincast and also your support for amazing and authentic wine communication. So, going right back to the the initial idea about Lenade, were there yeah. was there a particular kind of philosophy you had in mind as far as the wine making? Of course, you know I'm sure that as far as the viticulture it was in line with what you were consulting, what you right. were sort of telling, you know, making advice to the, the the actual owner of the vineyard. Exactly. But as far as um, your your wife then partner, I guess, yeah. uh, and and how she wanted to express the wine herself, did she have a particular idea in mind? Um, she wanted to be really particular. She's meticulous with cleanliness for a start. That's sure. something that uh, we don't see very often in wineries around the world. 
um, she had uh, in the winery she actually had the guys pull the drains out every single day during vintage and scrub them with a toothbrush mm. the drains mm. that was part of the cleanliness protocol she's okay. just meticulous about that doesn't like bacteria clearly. well no she loves bacteria I mean good bacteria healthy right exactly bacteria. the whole point is to foster an environment just like in the vineyard where you want to foster a positive environment where all species all organisms are working together sure. for a positive outcome it's the same thing in the winery uh, all the wine making is native fermentation mm. um, with the exception of Italy where they um, they told us native fermentation was okay and then they told us that it's not no. it's, when, uh, so when you say it's okay or it's not okay what do you mean we um, we had some really uh, convoluted negotiations with uh, with the Italians that sounds about right <laughs> it, it took us many many visits you start by um, showing up at lunchtime they'll take you to a uh, a small cafeteria where there's you know 15 courses of food coming out mm. you sit in the baking sun eating raw meat followed by many other courses and you say oh wouldn't this just be wonderful right you get seduced straight away and then they start talking business and you go yeah, yeah whatever you want yeah, yeah okay sort of what ends up happening <laughs> is they talk about nothing for forever yeah and then finally all of one of the, all, all of a sudden one of them just hits the table and says Alora, and they suddenly they all start talking business, and they all know the pattern. They all, and all do of a it. sudden they seem as sober as the day is young. Exactly, and they start negotiating with you. They always want to take a little bit back at sure, the end. Sure, you think you're almost finished with the negotiations. They slap the table again and say, "All right, that's enough for today. We're ninety five percent done. We'll cut, gather again tomorrow and do it all again." Yeah. So you do it all again the next day, and then the third day. Finally, we ended up meeting um, one night up at the winery. I didn't speak any Italian at the time. Um, we've got a translator who was completely uninterested in translating for us. She was outside shouting on the phone the whole time. Um, we had the, the vineyard manager. We had the owner. We had the owner's brother. We had the, um, the government enologist because everything has to pass through a government lab there. Yeah, it's so bureaucratic. It's extraordinarily bureaucratic. And um, we all sat there at the table negotiating the final uh, arrangements to, for us to make our Barolo there. And um, at one point, they, uh, they slide a piece of paper across the table and they say, hey, um, here's, uh, you know, it's all good. I think this will work fine. Here's your, um, here's your recipe for making Barolo. You know, here's your winemaking instructions. Mm. And Michelle just sort of gently slides it back and smiles sweetly and says, you know, thank you very much. I'm an accomplished winemaker. I haven't made Nebbiolo before, but I've, you know, I, like to, I like to know what I want to do with wine. I like to you know, do cold macerations, warm macerations, you know, native fermentations, all of that. Mm. And um, I think I'll do a pretty good job. And um, they go, um, no, you need to follow this protocol. And we start arguing back and forth about it. That's the DACG. Uh, right, and exactly. And so it ends up being around the DACG. They say, you know, eventually they can see this might make good wine. I mean, she had to draw it out. She had to draw pictures of it. She had mm. to say, this is what I want to do. This is when they're like, finally they say, all right, this will probably make good wine, but we can't guarantee it'll fit DACG. And yeah, so exactly. Say, all right, well, we'll, we'll take that chance. Mm. And they say, okay, that's fine. And so she says, you know, and I want to do native fermentation. We were just down at um, winery, I won't say the name, winery XYZ down the hill, a very famous winery. And uh, we got the full tour and they're all natural and they're organic and they do native fermentations and blah, blah, blah. And the enologist stops us. He goes, no, 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 no. That's not possible. They don't, uh, they don't do native fermentations. And we're like, yeah, they just told us. And he goes, no, I'm the government enologist for that winery too. And I assure you, they have to use... You know, yeast X, yeast Y, or yeast Z. Yeah. That's the law. Yeah. And um, Michelle goes, oh. And then all of a sudden, the owner, and the, this is the only time English was spoken the entire night, and in perfect English, he leans forward and says, hey, listen, 
We Italians are like snakes in the grass. Never believe anything that we tell you. No. <laughs> this is in the middle of negotiating. They're like icebergs. <laughs> to, to, what to you're actually seeing is probably 10, 10%. Unbelievable. The, the 90% is what you don't see and what they might not tell you. Exactly. So at the end of all of that, they took back the extra, um, the, the last little, you know, turn the knife a little bit. They wanted to get a little extra 1% back, which they did. We agreed to it. Mm. And um, yeah, that's how we started making wine. So um, long story, short answer. We... Um, uh, the winemaking's done. We only make one or two batches of any wine in, in a year, so we really focus on on quality. Sure. Um, she does do. She likes to cold soak wines for aromatic profile. Her okay. big things are mouthfeel and, and aroma. Right. Okay. So she works on macerations and, and temperature control and all sorts of uh, extended firms. We've done a lot of uh, skin contact. We've got a Cortese coming out. Um, it's actually landing this week. Yeah. On a boat. And um, we did some extended skin contact uh, on that lot. So that's really interesting. A white wine. With uh, with whole whole bunch. So with the Linnea wines, um, as as sort of time has passed, have you or right from the start, have you worked quite collaboratively as far as she's completely across all of the stuff that's happening in the vineyard, and and you have the ability to sort of have some input in the the winery, or you sort of, is it like a team where you kind of go, well, yeah, I, I trust him to know what he's doing in the vineyard, and he trusts me to know what I'm doing in the winery. Yes, and yes, we learn from each other. Um, she's pretty comfortable with what I can do in the vineyard, and um, I'm now pretty comfortable with what she does in the winery, mainly because in the last couple of years, since uh, child number three came along, it's uh, she kicks me in the butt, says, get on a plane, go bottle the Barolo, mm. <laughs> and then sends me over a seven-page, single-spaced, double-sided uh, instruction on exactly how to do bottling to make sure everything's uh, perfect and immaculate. So I've been doing that the last couple of years, but... When it comes to the winemaking, she her skills and her knowledge are just extraordinary. I just I step back and let her do a thing. So um, as it stands, how many different wines might you have in different parts of the world at any given moment? It's a Napa Cab. Yeah, uh, it's a Cabernet from Napa. We've got a, a Napa. Is it one hundred percent Cabernet Sauvignon? No, it's uh, the most recent. The one that's in the market right now is the two thousand and nine. Has a four percent Petit Verdot. Okay. Petit Verdot adds a little bit of um, perfume and adds a fleshiness to it. Sort of adds a bit of mouthfeel. Sure. Fattens up the palate. Um, we have a, a Heathcote Cabernet um, that's also in the market. That uh, the current vintage, which we're actually running out of now, is one hundred percent Cab. We're moving to. Um, a, a significant percentage of Petit Verdot. I think the next one's uh, 8%. Interesting. Cabernet yeah, from yeah. the Heathcote region. Yeah, a region probably better known for Shiraz. Right. Really good Cabernet from the area, no question. Which part of the Heathcote region is it in? Northern End, uh, up by Colburn Abbon. Okay. It's on, it's on the red, the famous so red on soils the everyone loves. Cambrian? Yeah, yeah. Everyone yeah, okay. loves the soil. It's not that good a viticultural soil, by the way. Um, I've seen a lot of different soils around the world. I've seen um, uh, from the extremely alkaline to the extremely acid and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And uh, Heathcote's okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it's a good combination of soil and climate. It does make for great wines. Sure. It's not. If I had to choose one soil in the world, I probably wouldn't choose that as the, as the first <laughs> choice. But it does make good Cabernet. We do like red soils in Australia, though, between the Precambrian and the Terra Rossa, you know, and the, 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 red, the red soils in the Barossa Valley over in WA. We love that red soil they for do, some yeah, reason. Yeah, exactly. It's like southern Italy. They love red soils. Yep. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's it's true. It's a, it's a phenomenon. Okay. So um, and, so what else? Have and you... then we've got a Moscato d'Asti. So we've got a, a two sites in Italy we work with in Piemonte. One is the Barolo site, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, just in uh, Castiglione and Folletto, just down below the town of um, Barolo. The vineyard actually straddles the border between Castiglione and Folletto and Monforte d'Alba. Sure. Um, part of the Busia crew, but it's not strictly Busia because there is a little bit of Monf- uh, the the Castiglione and Folletto in the blend. Okay. We basically it's a five hectare property. Uh, 
uh, I get to pick and choose um, where our parcel comes from. So we, you know, if it's a hot year, I'll go to the uh, uh, the east facing side, pick a little bit more of that, and and uh, less of the west face, and so on. Okay. Uh, and then we have a second site that we work with in uh, in a cold saddle up in the Monferrato Hills. Um, the vineyard there makes a number of different wines. We um, make a Moscato Dusty out of that region. We're con- contemplating a Brachetto wow. de Acqui, which I think is really great. I've had a lot of sommeliers ask for it, mm. um, but I can't convince my wife to make it. She just doesn't like Brachetto. Well, it's um, weird because so so much of the consuming public think of Moscato Dusty as a pink wine, yeah. whereas it's a white wine. It's totally white. Brachetto yeah. d'Acqui is much closer to what, yeah, exactly. what they think of as Moscato. Yeah, it's Moscato with a bit of tannin. I guess, or a little bit of uh, chocolate to it. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting, it's a really interesting wine. I actually really like it, but we're at odds on that one. Sure. Um, if I can convince or... Moscato I, has a name, though. It does. Whereas Brachetto, people kind of, oh, what's that? It's like, yeah. oh, it's Moscato. Well, why don't you just call it Moscato? It's because it's not Moscato. <laughs> well, when uh, Brachetto appears in a uh, in a rap song, then we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll we'll jump on top of it and start making it. Once, once Brachetto goes viral. Exactly. <laughs> and then we're, um, we started this year making Cortesi. Okay. Uh, it's actually uh, there's actually a DOC in the region called Cortesi dell'Alto Monferrato. Sure, uh, Cortesi is an obscure grape. Uh, it's probably best known uh, through Gavi. Yeah, and Gavi is at best a, a moderately insipid wine. It's uh, it. It got in its own way. It got DSCG status and then promptly decided, everyone there decided to churn out millions of cases of swill. Yeah. Um, it does go well with seafood. It does go really well, super chilled. And, and um, super it would be chilled, a- don't taste anything. Right, exactly. It, it's a great summer wine, no question. Of course. We've, we've gone back to basics and tried to explore the grape. We took the afternoon side, uh, the sunny side that had a bit of um, sort of a bronzing to it, a bit of color. Okay. Some more of the phenolic component. Yeah. And we put that on skins and yeah, just, okay. and fermented it on skins and macerated it on skins, really pulled out the phenolics on it. Expected it to go brown, expected to do some other stuff. It stayed just beautifully light yellow mm. and, and almost like a syrup. Sure, like sure. a phenolic syrup, and then the other side, the morning side, we uh, we fermented in a traditional stainless steel and uh, blended the two together, and it's a pretty interesting wine. Okay, a lot of layers to it. Wow. I'm pretty excited, actually. Um, anything else in the works at the moment? Yes, um, yes, and no. That you're willing to talk about? Yeah, we've got. I'm working with a, a, a consortium in um, on the other edge and a third edge of uh, Piemonte. So the the Monferrato Hills, the southern edge, just above Liguria. The Piemonte, um, the Barolo is in sort of in the sweet spot near Turin. Uh, on the uh, the eastern edge near Alessandria is a, a region uh, that's now becoming um, locally known for Timorasso, mm. a grape that disappeared. It was planted before the in the 1800s, disappeared during the the wars. Uh, one guy found it, reinvented it, if you will, started planting it, um, and that uh, Alberto Massa is his name. He um, it's an interesting grape. It's half. It's like a half sibling of Riesling, mm-hmm. and it has Riesling-like characters. So early on in its youth, it has a sort of Arnaise-like characters. It's got uh, lots of citrus and uh, that obscure minerality, that term that no one can quite uh, put the uh, biochemical footprint on. But it's um, there, was lot, there was a lot of discussion about that last year. Yeah, there? yeah. Minerality is a nebulous term that people apply. It has an interesting salty limestone character to it with the citrus. Okay. If you age it. It starts to take on Riesling characters and picks up that TDN character, that sort of that petrol, that diesel thing. Yeah, okay. And uh, so it's a very profound and, and complex wine, not dissimilar to, you know, a really good Riesling. Um, but 
You know, it's rare, it's unusual, and we have an opportunity to make some of that. Unfortunately, the DOCG there uh, requires uh, a, a three years in bottle, so well, three years from the winery, so it may end up being just like Barolo. Okay. In terms of it'll take forever to actually get to market. <laughs> um, any and, other varieties you're looking at? In yeah, then locally in Australia, we're, we, we're building an urban grunge garage winery right now. We just had a meeting this morning. Um, should be ready for vintage if all things go well. Uh, it's a secret location, a secret spot in the uh, the inner burbs, uh, surrounded by spandex-clad um, yoga <laughs> yoga mums. Okay. And um, it's actually at our home office right. down in Malvern. Oh, okay. I was thinking Southside. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's in the inner core. Okay. And um, we we're keen to expand locally, so we're actually looking at Tasmania right now. I'm going to be uh, heading down to Tasmania just before Vintage to start uh, working with some new clients down there. Okay. And I'm keen to uh, Riesling, um, some other white, maybe Pinot. Who knows? Mm-hmm. We'll see what's uh, what's available. And so the consulting business, you started your own business when? Right, 2008. So I was working with uh, David Abreu. I was working with Screaming Eagle and Harlan Estate and so on. Wow. You know, these $1,000 wines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, $1,000 a bottle. Mm. And um, had people starting to ask me, can you come consult on my property? And I was contractually obliged to him. Sat down one day and said, listen, you know, I'm getting these requests. What can we do about it? And he said, go for it, which I thought was very congenial and highly mm-hmm. unusual. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started working with just one or two properties in California just to see how it went. Um, in 2010, when we decided to pack up from Napa, move uh, to Melbourne, um, it gave us sort of a, just a free opportunity to do what I wanted. So 2009, started working with the Italians. 2010 was our first Barolo. Um, so I worked with several properties in Italy now. Um, in 2011, I started working with a winemaker in Israel. I did that um, wow. electronically. For three years or four years, okay. Um, we even did soil analysis um, <laughs> via Skype. I um, we started with Google Earth, mapped out where the vineyard uh, soil pits would be. Yeah. He, um, he got the backhoe, dug the holes, jumped in with his camera live. I sat there in my pajamas with a glass of whiskey mm-hmm. and told him, "Dig here, scrape the face there, pull that off, show me that rock, take that sample, take that sample, and so on." Took them all to the lab, um, did the analysis, and you know, sort of planned out the root socks and varieties and everything else. Um, I did do my first visit there last year, mm-hmm. and um, so that's uh, that's an ongoing project. I'm working in China. I've been going to China sort of six times a year for the last four years as well, to a um, a small vineyard, eight thousand hectares, one vineyard. Um, that's about the footprint of a city. Well, doesn't China now isn't isn't the largest? They've got the largest vine? largest under vine, most of which world. is table grape. Yeah, yeah. So about the fifth or sixth for wine grapes. They're not as far as wine production, and no, when you they're close, yeah. but they're terribly inefficient in their farming. Yeah, it's just awful. Yeah, well, they can they can afford to be. It's so cheap. Right. For everything's so cheap there. <laughs> right, right. They don't they don't have any you know financial reason to be more efficient. Yeah, correct. And so um so yeah, so I go to far um far western Gobi Desert. That's backed up against uh, Kazakhstan. Mm. I go there six times a year. Irrigation um, must be fascinating there. It, it is. It comes actually. There's a beautiful aquifer that's right underneath their feet, maybe 50 meters down. Yeah. Uh, crystal clean water. They've, they've got the Tian Shan Mountains right against them, and it's yeah. all glacial melt. Yeah. It was glaciers. It's now glacial melt. Okay. And it's all starting to pile up under the Gobi Desert, and oh, it's really right. clean. Wow. Yeah. So that's an interesting. Sounds site. like Mendoza. Yeah, and it's a long way up too. So like Mendoza, it's uh, the very high elevation. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's a fascinating part of the world. I think they're at the 50th latitude. Mm-hmm. Um, I also go to Mexico. I go to um, the Sierra Madre Occidental, uh, Oriental. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also high elevation desert viticulture. That's down at 23 latitude, which wow. is well and truly outside the sweet spot Very for, much so. for vineyards around the world. Yeah. So that's fascinating viticulture. They have zero rainfall in winter. 
they get a little bit of storm in summertime and, and uh, everything's done by, um, it's almost hydroponically. They're sitting in uh, sort of this clarified sand, if you will, and, and they're doing everything under irrigation. And looking at these sort of environments, like I would think that if you're looking in sort of new world, you yeah. know, within those kind of latitudes, right. and, as you said, the sweet spots, and you can sort of look at soil types and elevations and, and aspect and all that sort of stuff and mm -hmm. kind of go, well, if I compare it to Europe, this I think this is the kind of variety you'd plant or here's how you'd actually design your vineyard. When you're working in these areas that are, quite different right. quite different to the much more classic wine regions it must yep. be really really challenging but also kind of exciting to sort of be consulting in that kind of environment it's a unique experience no question i feel very fortunate to be in that position the range of soils is fascinating um, as i've said you know you go from extreme desert sands uh, some of which are uh, in the gobi they're alkaline in um uh, Mexico, they're also alkaline, but they're different different chemistries to them in terms of phosphorus and magnesium and so on. I won't bore your listeners with all the details of chemistry, but um, um, there are sites that I go to extremely acidic soils, waterlogged soils. Um, mm. I, I go from you know cold climates to really hot climates, pretty much everything in between. So you learn a lot about how grapevines respond to chemistry uh, to their soil, and it really is fascinating. I mean, soil really does make the wine. And does it ever happen that you go somewhere and just go... Mistake. Don't even plant <laughs> anything. Sell the land for whatever you can get and go somewhere else. Of course, always. Wow. You don't. Uh, you have to. You have to read the owner. You see how desperate they are, or how keen <laughs> they are. You do. You have to do that. Well, I've, when in California, we, we rejected many owners. We'd wine them and dine them. They bring out their most expensive bottles, and we'd sit there and say, "You know what? Your house is where the vineyard should be. If you're willing to move the house, we'll plant the vineyard." Yeah. And if they say yes, then they're committed. Okay. If they say no, then we're like, you know what? Maybe we're, maybe this is a bad match. Sure. But that was a new, that was a an unusual combination. Typically, what I'll do is if I'll find find out what they want. Mm -hmm. um, if it's just improve quality, if they're trying to improve practices, if they're trying to save money, whatever it is, we'll sit down and we'll go through all of those prospects. I sit down with the owner, I drink wine with them, I find out what they like, what they're trying to do, where it should go, um, and and you know we work backwards from what the owner wants to make in terms of wine, and we work backwards from the from the soil back to the back to the environment. Right. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And I'm 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 interested to sort of to hear how people kind of find you. Like, is it word of mouth or like do you you know like how do, how do, how does someone kind of find you to then approach you to say you know I've got a piece of land, can you come and consult to me? Yeah, it's been a little bit uh, been a little bit that way. Word of mouth is how it started. I, I keep a fairly low profile. I haven't really done many conferences. Uh, keen to start talking a little bit, uh, presenting here and there. Um, a lot of what I do is proprietary information. Mm. You know, my research project different. That's that's published information. But the most of what we've done, uh, in particular, the technology around irrigation. We um, I was part of a, a group project a number of years ago that started in California, working in sap flow sensors. Mm -hmm. Basically, uh, to sort of to explain it and to distill it down in, in without the detail, we had an environmental stations or weather stations that, that measured all of the environmental um, conditions: wind, rainfall temperature inside the canopy, et cetera, everything. Um, a very clever plant physiologist distilled that down to one, um, one equation, which he called evaporative demand. Mm -hmm. We measured using the sap flow sensors, we looked at soil, uh, at the vine's response to irrigation. So we had a soil moisture probe, we had the evaporative demand um, sensor, and we had the sap flow sensor. Basically, we looked at under different conditions of evaporative demand, under sort of the environment 
telling the vine, we need this amount of water to be pulled out of you, uh, we'd look at how the vine responded based on soil type, based on soil chemistry, based on water availability, uh, and based on the stage in the growing season. What that led to is this fundamental, and I want to say a paradigm shift in the way irrigation should be performed. Mm. And we've completely changed it. And people typically, they just go and they irrigate based on, uh, on a number or they irrigate based on what they think the vine needs, and it's all backwards. There's a, there's a period... Um, what we're doing now is we're looking at the, the phenology of the vine. We're looking at the stage the vine's at, and we're irrigating based upon that. We're trying to induce periods of, of where the vine's very happy and periods where the vine is under extreme stress mm. uh, and everything in between. And it's not it's kind of counterintuitive. Every vineyard manager I've presented it to has, had to has questioned it. I've had to give a three- or four-hour lecture every time on the, on the science of why, and we always just do a small test plot to prove. What I've found is that if we use this, this technique of this system – um, every single site in the world that I've used it to date, when it's been done correctly from start to finish, has made a profound effect on the wine and has worked exactly the same way. Independent of rootstock, independent of soil, independent of climate, independent of variety, with a few notable exceptions. Wow. And it's been really fascinating, and I don't quite understand why that is. It's, well, I guess it's sort of the same thing with biodynamics. It's like, oh, I don't really understand the science, but it seems to work, so let's just do it. Well, I can, I can give you uh, <laughs> some food for thought on biodynamics. Okay. Uh, the biodynamic practitioners are very cognizant of the of the climate, the cognizant of the weather, yeah. the season. They spend a lot more time in the vineyard than your average farmer. Sure. When you're out there in the vineyard doing stuff, even if you're spraying milligrams per, you know, of of material X into, you know, kilometers of soil, which is not really doing anything, um, you're still out there. You're learning about the vines. You're in touch with the vines. Yeah. You're understanding their cycles. You're spotting problems, spotting disease, spotting good areas, poor areas, and you're starting to, even subconsciously, starting to manage your vines better. Mm. So biodynamics has a beautiful aspect in that. It's just about the relationship regard. with the land. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm never against it. I love biodynamics. I think it's really <laughs> useful for people to get in touch with the vineyard. Well, um, look, it has been a really, really fascinating chat. It's great to sort of hear about your background and all the different projects you're involved with. Um, and so I appreciate you coming on the Vincast. Uh, as far as um, people getting in contact with you, sure. do you want to just give me like websites and any uh, social media accounts you may have that people can follow what you're doing? Sure, easy. Thank you. And a uh, real pleasure to be here. I really appreciate your time. Um, the easiest way to contact me is through Linnea Vineyards. It's L-I-N-N-A-E-A. L-I-N-N-A-E-A, Linnea Vineyards. We have uh, Twitter, you'll find us, um, Instagram, you'll find us, and, and LinneaVineyards.com website. All our contact info is there, um, and you can reach me just like that. Fascinating. Fantastic. And uh, look, I, uh, I'm excited to sort of try some of the wines, hopefully soon. And, uh, and, and again, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. And thank you, dear listener of the Vincast, for listening to another episode of the podcast. I, of course, have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And as always, you can follow me on social media. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Intrepid Wino. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at the Vincast. Definitely head to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino and hit that like button because uh, you then get access to uh, links and, and news and photos as well. Uh, and of course, please visit my YouTube channel, which is at uh, the Intrepid Wino channel, where I do um, lots of different wine tastings and I'm hoping to do some more videos in the near future. Uh, I would love for you to subscribe to the podcast and you can do that on a, a number of different platforms. Uh, if you want to get the feed, go to my website. But uh, usually you can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM uh, and on the podcast app on your iPhone. 
If you do subscribe, you're going to get the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. And if you do subscribe, please take the time to leave me a rating and review. Uh, share your impressions of the podcast. Let me know who you might want to hear on future episodes. Uh, it does provide amazing feedback for potential listeners and also for potential guests. Of course, all the information is available at intrepidwino.com, so please come and visit me. Uh, Send me an email at thevincast at gmail.com. Please get in touch, and I'd love to hear from you. But uh, otherwise, until next time, bye.